Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate, or you can go to buymeacupofcoffee slash CraigU. All of these links are also in my show notes. And for people who donate, I have various levels of benefits. For $5, you get a thank you at the start of the next episode of Canadian History X, Canada's Great War, and from John to Justin, and on social media. For $10, you get everything from the $5, plus this episode is sponsored by, with your name at the start. Also, I'll state it's sponsored by you on social media. For $20, everything from the $5 and $10, plus a second episode sponsored by you, and promotion of something you're working on. And for $50, everything from the $5, $10, and $20 plus, you get to choose a topic for me to cover on Canadian History X. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And I'm on Instagram and TikTok where I put up daily videos about Canada's history. Just go to my username, Bairdo37. And you can find weekly videos on Canada's history on my YouTube channel. Just go to youtube.com slash c slash Canadian History X. If you want to find transcripts of every episode I've ever done, you can go to my website, CanadaEHX.com. And there's over 700 posts on Canada's history there. Before I start, I want to say welcome to the newest patron of the podcast. And I hope I pronounce your name correctly, Keelan Prignitz. Thank you for becoming a patron. I truly, truly do appreciate it. It was an event that many felt was doomed to fail. It was looked down on and scoffed at before it was even held. After it was all said and done, though, it was not only a massive success, but also a landmark moment in Canadian history. I'm talking about Expo 67, when the world came to Canada during Canada's centennial year. This event has a lot going on, so buckle up. I hope you enjoy this episode. Now, I've already covered the Canadian Centennial, 
itself a major affair. So check that out on my podcast feed. But the Expo 67, also known as the Universal and International Exhibition, or World's Exhibition, was the highlight of the centennial festivities for the year. The idea of Expo 67 begins with Senator Mark Druin, who first came up with the idea of the World Exhibition being held in Montreal to celebrate the centennial. Senator Druin and Senator Sarto Fournier, the former mayor of Montreal, worked together to present the idea to the Bureau International de Exposition in Paris. At first, their efforts were for nothing as they were turned down in favor of the 1967 World Exhibition being held in Moscow. That all changed in 1962 when the USSR cancelled its plans and a new presentation was made to the Bureau by Jean Drapeau, the mayor of Montreal. With that presentation, Montreal was awarded the World's Exhibition, the first to ever be held in Canada. In Paris today, an announcement made it official. Montreal will be the site of the World's Fair in 1967. For that story, to Paris and Stanley Burke. Pierre Sévigny, the Associate Defense Minister, expressed satisfaction that after long and often discouraging negotiations, Canada has finally won the World's Fair for the 1967 centennial year. He said that a Crown Corporation will be quickly established to begin planning. With 40 million visitors expected, perhaps even 50 million, he emphasized the benefits to all Canada. Montreal's Mayor Jean Drapeau said that at times Montrealers will be outnumbered by the visitors in their own city. Unemployment will be ended as Montreal sets to work in preparation to build a city within a city. In fact, there may be a shortage of labor and workers may move in from other parts of Canada. He too emphasized that directly and indirectly all Canada will participate. Canadian investment will be $40 million government investment, but the mayor said that total investment on the fair grounds for national pavilions, corporate displays, and so on will be about $100 million, and total expenditures probably of the order of $1 billion. Close to 60 countries are expected to participate. Canada is expected to receive strong international support for the fair for a somewhat unusual reason. The United States is not a member of the International Expositions Bureau, and thus... For the international organization, the New York World's Fair is a wildcat. Other members of the organization are thus expected to give every assistance to Canada against this competition. This is Stanley Burke, CBC News in Paris. In Montreal itself, plans went ahead for the reception of the millions of visitors expected to pour into the city for the fair. This report by Alan Yates. Although warmly received here, the news was really no great surprise to Montrealers. The World's Fair was virtually the biggest election promise made by Mayor Jean Drapeau recently, and he made sure of the outcome before going to the people again in last month's election. He left no one in doubt at the campaign time that the fair would become a reality. The fair and the enormous pre preparation work it entails fit nicely into the city's general plan for a bigger, better, and more bustling Montreal. It will mean millions of dollars worth of tourist traffic, which will have to be accommodated. So vast construction projects are in order. It's been estimated that at least six major skyscraper hotel projects are a must, merely to accommodate visitors. The fair itself will take up at least 500 acres on the island of Montreal. The exact site still isn't known, and city officials say now that it won't be for probably a month yet. Whether it goes on unexploited land or replaces existing run-down parts of the city... It will bring great physical as well as financial benefits to Montreal. It's certain the city will hardly be recognizable 
by the time the fair is over, with Mayor Drapeau wanting to turn it into not just the metropolis of Canada, but the metropolis of the world. Alan Yates of CBC News in Montreal. To begin the process of preparing Montreal for the world's visit in only five years, the House of Commons established the Canadian Corporation for the 1967 World Exhibition, a crown company. It was that company's mandate to build and run the entire event. The exhibition would be funded 50% by the federal government, 37.5% by the Quebec government, and 12.5% by the City of Montreal. A conference was held by the three government levels bringing together educators, writers, and intellectuals with the goal of choosing a theme. In the end, the conference would choose Man and His World. OCS Robertson, a retired Canadian Navy Commodore, would state, quote, What we're trying to do is to show the problems of our time and what the possible solutions are. But the solutions won't be pipe dreams. We are trying to stay within what science and technology know now and what can be done over the next 20 years, end quote. In late 1963, the master plan was completed and submitted to Parliament. The next step was finding a site for Expo 67, there were many proposals put forward, but it was St. Helens Island, a park in the center of the St. Lawrence River, that was chosen for the expo site. The site was too small, so land would be added to the island by using silt and rock dredged up from the bottom of the river. A new island, Ile Notre Dame, would also be created next to the main island. Mount Royal was in the running to be the site, but Drapeau was the one to choose the site of the island. Almost as soon as the site was chosen, there were questions of whether or not it could actually be feasible. A computer program also predicted that the event could not happen in time. Hey, Gabe, we're supposed to be at City Hall. We're going to build it right here. Oh, uh, yeah, sure. And give wetsuits to all the visitors? <laughs> no, on the water. Hey, come on, we're talking about building something the size of 64 city blocks. And there's no land left in Montreal. So. Get serious. Listen, we'll build islands. How? Dig up Montreal? <laughs> <laughs> They're digging a subway, remember? You take it from there, and you put it here. 12 months and 25 million tons of fill later, St. Helens Island was reshaped and Ile Notre Dame was created. Come on. We don't want to keep Mayor Drapeau waiting, do we? Montreal's Expo 67. It would prove to be the most successful World's Fair of the 20th century. The process of construction began when Prime Minister Lester B. Pearson pulled a lever that caused a front-end loader to dump the first batch of fill to enlarge the island. Quebec Premier Jean Lesage then used a bulldozer to spread the fill. It was estimated that 25 million tons of till would be needed to build the islands. It was soon found that the river bottom sources of landfill were not sufficient for the expansion of the island. As a result, for months, dump trucks brought in earth from the Montreal Metro excavation to the site on a 24-hour basis. More fill came from the quarries of Montreal on the south shore. This method caused the cost of building to balloon from 10 million to an estimated 40 million. Interestingly, the land that was rising of the harbour was not the property of the Expo Corporation, but the city of Montreal. And then on June 20, 1964, the grounds the fair would be held on would be transferred to the corporation. From this point, the man behind the construction, Colonel Edward Churchill, 
had 1,042 days to get everything built and functioning. To do this, he used a new management tool called Critical Path Method. Churchill, known simply as Colonel around the construction site, was the man for the job. During the Second World War, he oversaw the building of 192 airfields around Europe. McLean's would write about his management tool, stating, quote, CPM has its own mysterious jargon and involves yards of charts covered with lines and arrows pointing to little squares, circles, and hexagons, end quote. Churchill would keep everyone on schedule through sheer force of will, it seemed. McLean's described him on June 1, 1967, stating, quote, There's that broad bulldog face under the fierce, bushy eyebrows, that raspy voice, surprisingly high-pitched, that infuriating habit he has of cutting in on what you're saying. Before you finish answering one question, he's peppering you with three others, end quote. Churchill also had a near-legendary memory. The chief engineer of the project would say, quote, he has an uncanny ability to pack five million things into his mind and remember all of them, end quote. When the engineer asked Churchill if he remembered when they first met, Churchill responded, quote, sure I remember, and the bar bill was $22, end quote. On July 1st, 1964, with the site finished and officially turned over to the Exhibition Corporation, it would then be divided into four areas that would have the entrance, three exhibition areas, and the amusement area. The theme for Expo 67 was divided into five groups. Man the Creator, Man the Explorer, Man the Producer, Man the Provider, and Man in the Community. The Expedition Corporation then invested over $40 million into the main theme and these sub-themes. The pavilions would be built by the nations participating in Expo 67. The nations would either build their own pavilion or combine with regional pavilions. The Soviet Union would invest $15 million in its pavilion, while Czechoslovakia invested $10 million and the United States $9 million. While several dozen nations are actively participating in Expo 67, the two most looked at and most watched structures belong to a couple of long-time adversaries. Stan Ranton has the story. Two of the larger pavilions at Expo are those of the Soviet Union and the United States. They stand like glowering sentries facing each other across the Lemoyne Channel, which separates Ile Notre Dame from Ile Saint Helene. The Soviet pavilion looks on the outside like a giant ski jump rising to a height of 138 feet and surrounded by glass. It's basically a two-story building and filled with an array of hardware and space equipment. Yevgeny Yerushnikov, the press officer for the Soviet pavilion, explained the basic idea behind the Soviet presentation. In keeping with man and his world theme of Expo, the theme of our pavilion is everything in the name of man for the benefit of man. And, and of course, we are showing some of the achievements, major achievements of the Soviet people during the 50 years, last 50 years, because this year we have uh, the 50th anniversary of the Soviet state. So we show such things as natural resources, how they are being developed, oil, coal, machinery, and so on, power-producing installations such as uh, the biggest in the world hydroelectric power station built now on the Enisei River in the heart of Siberia. And uh, then we show the things uh, needed by people, housing, medical services, uh, education naturally, and art in a big way, theater, folk art, architecture, so on. The Soviet pavilion also features a theater that takes visitors on an imaginary trip to the moon. By comparison, the U.S. pavilion is a 250-foot geodesic bubble 
designed by Buckminster Fuller, the architect philosopher. And inside, the approach is more impressionistic. Nicholas Ruggieri, the director of information for the U.S. exhibit, described it this way. We are uh, presenting an exhibition which is entitled Creative America. Uh, this theme has been selected in order to provide an illustration of the various forms of creative energy which are at work in the United States. Uh, some of it a, ref a reflection of our past accomplishments in the field of arts and crafts, uh, but most of it is a projection of the forward-looking nature of our society, an experimentalist nature, if you will. Uh, we like to give the impression of a country that's in constant movement, uh, dynamic, positive in, in the utilization of its uh, creative energy. And uh, for that reason, we have deliberately avoid anything that uh, is uh, of a commercial or industrial nature. A look at two of the major pavilions here at Expo. This is Stan Ranton reporting. The pavilions themselves were designed in many different styles. The man in his community pavilion was built from frames of Douglas fir harvested in Canada. The German pavilion was a 15-story multi-peak tent of plastic to show how materials could later be used in the design of buildings. The U.S. and its Buckminster Fuller geodesic dome would become a prototype for that form of construction. Various groups were also allowed to create their own pavilions. Seven Christian churches combined to make a Christian pavilion, while there was also the pavilions for the United Nations, the European Economic Community that would later become the European Union, Judaism, and a youth pavilion. Across the 60 pavilions at Expo 67, 120 governments took part, and there were thousands of exhibitors and sponsors in 53 private pavilions. The logo for Expo 67 would be designed by Julien Hébert, with the pictographs of man linked to represent friendship. It was put into a circular arrangement to represent friendship around the world. Many federal politicians did not like the logo, and there was an attempt to replace it through a motion in the House of Commons that eventually failed. McLean's wrote in 1966, quote, This is Expo's site. It is as big as downtown Toronto, and most of it didn't exist two years ago. It took more dirt fill than the pharaohs lavished on the pyramids to create these instant islands. If you spent an hour at each exhibition, it would take you about three months to see everything. End quote. One of the more interesting parts of the Expo 67 site was the Sky Ride, which was a fiberglass gondola that ran at 120 feet above the site, giving a sweeping look at Expo 67 and the Montreal skyline. By 1966, the number of people working on Expo 67 was massive. For example, there was 275 stenographers and 159 clerks who assisted 54 divisional heads who had to cope with 3 million sheets of paper per month flying across their desk. By that year, Expo had also sent over 17 million informational pieces across the planet in seven different languages, as well as Braille. In the months leading up to the opening of Expo, 90,000 Canadians had booked advanced hotel accommodations for the first six months of the Expo. The majority of the reservations came from Ontario, followed by British Columbia. Another 150,000 advanced bookings came from the United States. For many who doubted that everything would be finished on schedule, Expo 67 made believers of them. McLean's would write on January 1, 1967, quote, Even skeptical visitors to the site are now coming away persuaded that the enthusiasts have been right all along, 
Expo is literally the greatest show on earth, end quote. And at the time, McLean's estimated 4 million Canadians and 6 million international visitors would come to Expo. As we will see later in this episode, they were way off. Expo would open on April 28, 1967, and on that day, everything was done except Habitat 67, which was still a work in progress. The official ceremonies for Expo 67 were held the day previous on April 27th, and this was an invite-only event. Governor-General Roland Michener proclaimed the event open as Prime Minister Pearson lit the Expo flame. At the opening ceremonies, there were 53 heads of state, 1,000 reporters, and 700 million viewers and listeners around the world. Pearson would say, quote, I feel very proud today, but even more so yesterday, when I had the very special, almost childish sense of pride in my country when I was at the opening of Expo. I think everybody felt that way. End quote. He would add, quote, Anyone who says we aren't a spectacular people only has to see this. End quote. Republic of China, Republic of Chine, Netherlands, Pays-Bas, Maroc, Morocco, France, France, Belgique, Belgium, Grande-Bretagne, Britain, Canada, Canada. Excellency Pierre Dupuy, Commissioner General of Expo, with the roll call to the flags, and now the flame that was lighted two years ago in Canada's capital. From the Mayor of Montreal to the Premier of Quebec, to the Prime Minister. There it is. I have the honor, in the name of all Canadians, to inaugurate officially the 1967 Universal and International Exhibition. Your Excellency, the Governor General. Mr. Commissioner General and all the Expo workers, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen. The sky is blue, sun is shining, it's a great day. Le jour qui marque une grande occasion to Montreal, le Québec et le Canada tout entier peut être fier. The heading of an article about Expo in a recent issue of an American magazine referred to it as the Big Blast Up North. Certainly Expo is going to be that, and much more. Behind this big Canadian birthday blast are achievements in planning, in organization, and in construction that are a little, that are a little short of miraculous. The men behind these achievements should be very proud and very happy today, and we should be grateful to them, especially as we recall 
the skeptics who once said that Expo 67 was too big a project for Montreal, for Quebec, or for Canada to accomplish in less than four years. It was done. It was well done. And we are witnesses today to the fulfillment of one of the most daring acts of faith in Canadian enterprise and ability ever undertaken. That faith was not misplaced. The next day, the Montreal Gazette published the largest issue in its history to that point, 152 pages, with five sections highlighting the expo. It all opened officially for the public the next day with a countdown using an atomic clock that opened the exhibition at exactly 9.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. The first person to walk through the expo gates was Al Carter, a jazz drummer from Chicago who was presented with a gold watch for the honor. The cost to attend Expo 67 was $12 for a week's admission, or about $100 today. Teenagers and children both paid much less to attend. As soon as you walked into the expo site, there was an electronic billboard that was 40 feet wide and 30 feet high that showed wait times of pavilions, the daily program, the weather, and where tickets were still available for shows. Throughout the site, there were also 240 women wearing miniskirts, selected out of 3,000 who applied. They were the hostesses who assisted guests with directions and more, and they had to speak at least English and French, although some spoke many more, like Sonia Samia, who spoke seven languages. Now, John, let's go back to events of this morning at the public opening of Expo 67. You also met one of the Expo hostesses, so let's hear how she made out as of a couple of hours ago. Have you had any questions yet? Oh, have I had questions? I've had all sorts of questions. Like what? Like, where, first of all, where do we change American money? This seems to be the real problem now. And where do you? Well, the bank isn't open yet, so you can't change it until you get on the site or on, at this bank at 10 o'clock. So that's the biggest problem but they will accept it at par the american money so you can get on the site and then um get it changed to the bank on the site and what other questions um where do i get my passport validated so they're having trouble with that uh where's this where's that all sorts of little obscure things you look a little chilly <laughs> it's cold cold it is though the sun is shining brightly just a little chilly for april nearly may actually now, John, you talked with some of the expo hostesses over at their pavilion on St. Helens Island. That's right. I was trapped in a room with over a hundred beautiful girls. That's what makes this assignment so tough. Poor chap. Let's listen to the girls themselves. I, I was born in Winnipeg, but I'm living in Montreal now. How many languages do you speak? I speak three, uh, English, French, and German. Oh, I was born in Montreal, and I speak French and English. Uh, I was born in Poland. I lived in Germany for a few years, and then I came to Canada. I speak four languages, English, French, German, and Yiddish. I was born in Montreal, and uh, I speak French, English, and a little bit of Spanish. Tell me what you do at Expo. I'm an Expo hostess, one of 250. And do you want to hear everything that we do? Well... <laughs> We're working on the site in information booths. We'll be greeting VIP visitors during the summer. Just generally receiving guests at Expo, making their stay more pleasant if we can. What will you be doing opening day and thereafter during the summer? Well, we'll be in information booths, uh, answering people's questions and uh, directing them at different, you know, wherever they'd like to go, different pavilions and so on. 
It was expected there would be a crowd of about 200,000 people for opening day. In fact, 310,000 to 350,000 people showed up. The Montreal Gazette reported that computers were unable to keep up with the first day attendance, with the counting mechanism breaking down during the day, creating that estimate. So many people were going to the 132-acre amusement park that the Gyrotron, the largest and most expensive part of the park, broke down for much of the day. Lester B. Pearson also attended the first day and stated he was wrong for his doubts that the project would not be finished in four years. McLean's would write, quote, All roads lead to Expo 67, or give it a proper title, the Universal and International Exhibition 1967. It is the first true World's Fair ever to be held in North America, and is also Canada's largest single centennial project, end quote. The Montreal Star would write, quote, it is the most staggering Canadian achievement since this vast land was finally linked by a transcontinental railway. End quote. The opening day, of course, was not without problems. Vietnam War protesters picketed during the opening day, and there were threats from the FLQ that they were going to disrupt the exhibition, but they ended up being inactive during the entire period of the exhibition. Throughout the run of Expo 67, there were many musicians who came out to perform, including Thelonious Monk, The Grateful Dead, and Jefferson Airplane. On May 7th and 21st, the Ed Sullivan Show was broadcast from Expo 67 with the Supremes, Petula Clark, and the Seekers performing. It also included a taped tour of the grounds with stops at various pavilions. Speaking for Expo 67, Ed Sullivan. This is a really big shoe. And this year, I'll be here to enjoy the world's greatest performers and entertainers will appear in a Canadian World Festival of Entertainment. Expo 67, Montreal, Canada. The first international exhibition of its kind ever to be held in North America. The world's major orchestras, opera companies, ballet companies, the world's greatest national theatrical groups. 200 magnificent attractions showing man's wide achievements in the world of the performing arts. An exciting part of Expo's theme, Man and His World. You'll thrill to the world's greatest performers when you visit Expo 67. Expo would also appear on Our World, a two-hour international program that was sent out live to 500 million viewers, which was the largest audience in TV history by that point. There were several dignitaries who also came out to see Expo 67, including President Lyndon Johnson, Princess Grace of Monaco, Jackie Kennedy, Robert F. Kennedy, the Maharashi Mahesh Yogi, and, of course, Charles de Gaulle. De Gaulle would cause an uproar during his visit when he spoke at the Montreal City Hall on July 24th and said, quote, Viva Montreal! Viva la Quebec! Viva la Quebec Libre! Prime Minister Pearson would condemn the speech, stating, quote, The people of Canada are free. Every province in Canada is free. Canadians do not need to be liberated. Indeed, many thousands of Canadians gave their lives in two world wars in the liberation of France and other European countries. End quote. The incident was considered a major breach of diplomatic protocol, and it would inflame the growing sovereignty movement in Quebec. In fact, it would prove to be a watershed moment during the Quiet Revolution, and it would inspire individuals like René Lévesque, the future premier and separatist of Quebec. De Gaulle would leave Canada instead of visiting Ottawa, where he was to meet the Prime Minister. The most prominent visitor was, of course, Queen Elizabeth II, who came out to Expo 67, while also celebrating Canada's centennial. For anyone who loved food, Expo 67 was the perfect place as over 60 nations had food ranging from cotton candy to caviar. 
although it was expensive, with some places costing as much as $40 for a dinner of two, which would be about $334 today. McLean's would write, quote, A gourmet could spend six months eating three meals a day at Expo 67 and never taste the same dish twice, but he would have to be a millionaire gourmet, end quote. A major disruption would occur in September when there was a 30-day transit strike in Montreal, which cut heavily into the attendance and revenue figures for the Expo. And then on October 29, 1967, Expo 67 ended, two days longer than what was scheduled so that it could run over the weekend. Prime Minister Pearson would douse the Expo 67 flame, while Governor-General Roland Missioner closed out the festivities by stating, quote, It is with great regret that I declare that the Universal and International Exhibition of 1967 has come to an official end. end quote. All rides shut down at 3.50 p.m., and the Expo grounds closed at 4 p.m. The end of Expo was bittersweet for many. Montrealer Giselle Fournier would say, quote, The world came to us and now it's going away. Look at the faces of the people. Expo means culture. I only hope it does not die. We need this culture. It means a lot to Canada, not just Montreal. Expo 67 was designed with the expectation that 26 million people would come to it. In reality, over 50 million people visited Expo 67 from April 28th to October 27th, which doesn't count the 5 million admissions for performers, employees, official visitors, and the press. The most popular pavilion in Expo 67 was the Soviet Union exhibition, which attracted 13 million people. The Canadian Pavilion attracted 11 million, and the United States Pavilion 9 million, while France attracted 8.5 million. In all, Expo 67 cost Canada, Quebec, and Montreal about $283 million, which would be about $2.3 billion today. And while that may seem like a lot, the amount returned was much higher. In fact, the tourist revenue alone in 1967, directly related to Expo, was calculated at $480 million, or $4 billion today. After Expo 67, the exposition held a standing collection of international pavilions known collectively as Man and His World. Unfortunately, attendance fell rapidly. In 1971, the entire island site was closed to the public, and in 1974 was rebuilt around a new rowing and canoe sprint basin, as Montreal was now preparing to host the 1976 Summer Olympics. The Buckminster Fuller Dome was also partly destroyed by fire in 1976, one year after the Ontario Pavilion was lost due to fire. By this point, the entire site was falling into disrepair, and several pavilions were crumbling and vandalized. After a few brief reopenings, the remaining small pavilions on the island were closed for good in 1984. One of the best-known lines of the Expo 67 song was, Now we are 20 million. This week, 18 years later, Canada officially passed the 25 million mark. But while the population is going up, much of Expo itself is falling down and becoming a bit of an eyesore. Paul Kuziak visited the once famous islands in the St. Lawrence and discovered a plan that may yet restore some of that old Expo magic. Expo 67, Canada's biggest birthday party in the pride of Montreal. Mayor Drapeau's dream was that the site would become a permanent exhibition, a lasting monument to a city with international status. Today, that dream is slowly rotting in the middle of the St. Lawrence River. 
Much of the site has been neglected for years. The old pavilions are crumbling, weeds cover most of the walkways, and everywhere vandalism has taken its toll. Most of the original buildings are now beyond repair and off-limits to the public. The city tried to maintain them, but it turned out to be a losing battle. They were built for six months, so they, were not, they didn't have any isolation, they didn't have any facility to stay, to pass through the winter, so they deteriorated by the time. And also the city invested many, lots of money during all those years to try to keep them, keep the, the best of them, but we, we could afford to keep all of them. Despite the decay, several attempts have been made to rejuvenate the site. The Floralie, the international flower show, turned much of Ile Notre-Dame into a beautifully landscaped park. And more recently, the Ramses II exhibition is bringing crowds back down to the islands. But the site's main hope lies with the future. By 1990, a new $100 million science and technology center will open on Ile Saint-Hélène. The biosphere will be rebuilt as part of the center. And next summer, the new $40 million food and agricultural exhibit opens on Ile Notre-Dame. The city hopes to restore some of the original expo site and integrate it into the new project. Most of the old pavilions will have to be demolished, but some can be renovated. The old theme pavilions will be restored, as well as three other pavilions that are now closed to the public. Only two pavilions still stand. The Buckminster Fuller, even though it went through a fire, is now the Montreal Biosphere, a museum dedicated to the environment. The other is Habitat 67, which was an ambitious project to reimagine apartment living. Habitat 67 has a story all its own. Consisting of 354 prefabricated concrete cubes consisting of 168 apartments, it was designed by an architecture student from McGill University. Designed to solve urban ills with its unique cubist design, costs for Habitat 67 spun out of control, and in order to recoup the costs after Expo, the government set rents so high no one could afford to live there. It also had severe problems by the 1970s due to its concrete design, including water getting into the concrete and mold getting into the ventilation system. It would be sold to private hands in the mid-1980s and still serves as an apartment building to this day. It's also been awarded heritage status by the provincial government. Today, Expo 67 is considered a landmark moment for Canada when the country hosted the world for arguably the first time. In 1968, the Montreal Expos, Canada's first Major League Baseball team, were named for the event. Expo 67 also continues to be one of the most successful world exhibitions of the 20th century. It wouldn't be the last world exhibition to be held in Canada, though. Almost two decades later, Expo 86 was held in Vancouver, and I actually attended it. But that's a story for another podcast episode. I will end this episode with the last paragraph from the last of 552 daily columns written from August 23, 1965 to October 30, 1967 by Montreal Gazette columnist Bill Bantley. He stated, quote, Expo was the smell of quiche Lorraine, the crackle of 121 flags over the United States Pavilion, the haunting airs of the gypsy band in the Coliba, the fascination of communist country staffs with the abundance of goods in supermarkets, the crazy hats of Americans. End quote. I hope you enjoyed that episode and my look at Expo 67. Next week, we're looking at when Jacques Cartier met the indigenous. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C R A I G B A I R D, 
and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. As well, again, if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. And you can donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. I'd also like to thank all of my wonderful patrons, and I apologize if I get any names incorrect. Keelan Pregnitz, Michael Matthews, Joanna Parker, Jeff Dahl, Vobs, Robert Page, Richard D., Colin Johnson, Jeff Hershey, Kyle Murray, Steve Pakin, Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, an anonymous patron that I truly do appreciate, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roy, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. Information from Canadian Encyclopedia, CBC, Maclean's Wikipedia, John Drupal Park, Historica Canada, Library and Archives Canada, The Guardian, Edmonton Journal, Ottawa Citizen, Montreal Gazette, and the National Film Board of Canada. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.